So uh, I have a phone. I have a smartphone, you know, and uh, I know how to text. Do you know how to text? Yeah, I'm pretty proud of myself. It wasn't easy. And uh, because I know how to text now, I'm with it. I used to be without it, but now I'm with it. And uh, so Sunday afternoon, I received a text from one of my relatives. He's my nephew. His name is Robert. I call him Robbie. He's uh, 52 years old. He's a police officer uh, in Florida. And he sent me this text, and I would like to read it to you. So here it is. Uh, He begins, uh, hey, Uncle Stu, that's me. Uh, I had my second session, he means cancer treatment session. He was diagnosed with a form of cancer and is undergoing treatments. He said, I had my second session on Tuesday and I go for my third tomorrow. Thank God, no side effects thus far. I go again on Tuesday and finish on Thursday. So I'm reading that, not entirely surprised, because we've been in touch, and he has been keeping me posted on the nature of his treatments and so on. And then I read this. We found a church. See, he's Jewish. And he, he found a what? Just like this. We found a church. And then my jaw had dropped, and then dropped even further when I read, I accepted Jesus today. He says, it was very emotional for me. Uh, During the service and towards the end, the pastor was encouraging those new to the church or to Jesus to come up and pray with him. My wife, who knows me better than myself, told me to go up. As I sat there struggling with myself, other people were going up. After the third person went up, I made the decision to go and publicly accept him, and I'm glad I did. I just wanted to share this with you, love, Rob. Oh, my goodness. This is the fourth one of my relatives who has accepted the Lord in recent days, and this is after I became a Christian 40 years ago. So I've been praying with them and taking advantage of opportunities that have presented to share, and things are happening. In fact, I'd like to... Forgive me for this. This is just personal time, but uh, I just got to get this out. Otherwise, you know, you get like a, you get a hernia if you don't get these things out. You know what I'm talking about? So I would like to show you. I want to show you a picture. Um, this is my mother on the chair. She's going to be 98 years old in May. 98. She accepted the Lord when she was about 66, 60, 67 years old. And that's my nephew, her grandson, Rob, right there who just accepted, just accepted the Lord right there. He's a good-looking guy, don't you think? It's a Jewish thing. Take a look at this next photo. I want to show you something else. Okay, so these are, these are brothers and sister, brothers and sister. The two guys are cops. They're tough. They're very tough guys. They're rough-and-tumble guys. So the two Robbie is the guy who just accepted the Lord on the, on the left. And uh, in the middle is their sister, Marsha. She accepted the Lord one month ago. One month. I sent her a Bible. She says she can't put it down. She told me, I spoke to her yesterday. She said, I'm just about finished reading Matthew. 
I can't put it down. She found a good church. She goes to church every single Sunday. She's Jewish also. So, so we're praying for the other guy on, the, on that side. His name is Adam. He's a, he's a tough guy. He's just, they're, they're cops for uh, close to 30 years. They're veteran police officers. So he's a tough guy o- over there. And so we're praying for him next. And then all three of the kids uh, would come to know the Lord. Then I want, I want to show you something, just this next photo. And then we'll do Bible study. So, so you see that kid there, that beautiful kid? That's my niece's daughter. My niece was in the prior picture. Uh, this is my niece's daughter. She accepted the Lord at Florida State University about two months ago. She's being baptized at Daytona Beach right there uh, uh, to publicly identify herself with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is an on-campus Christian group that uh, she's affiliated with. And apparently they're wimps in Florida. It takes two big guys to baptize a little girl. We do it. You saw Roy do it. And, you know, he's no physical specimen. He, di- he just did it. We just do Texas with one guy. That's all it takes. Anyway, that's, that's Casey right there. So I'm just so grateful to... Listen, I'm, uh, this is personal to me, but don't make it personal. You have family members who don't yet know the Lord. Be encouraged. Don't give up. We have to pray. One of the things I prayed is that God would send people into their lives. I'm not there. I'm far away. And he has done this. A teacher, a friend, a classmate. Pray. Oh, God, send someone who loves you into the life of my unsaved family member and and just watch the Redeemer go to work, for he desires for all to be saved, for none to perish. All righty, all righty. You know what they got saved from? They got saved from sin, because that's their inherited nature. It's passed on. They were not born good, basically good. They didn't make some mistakes. They were born with a sin nature, and when they were old enough, they began a life of sheer in outright rebellion against a holy God. That's exactly what they did. And they needed to be saved from it. You know, and Paul was trying to persuade his people, very religious Jewish people, that they needed to be saved as well. Now, they were tough to persuade because they said to Paul, we got a bunch of stuff. God's given us all all kinds of privileges. You know what I mean? And they were persuading themselves because they were Jewish and they were given the Torah, you know, the the word of God, Mount Sinai and all that. They were persuaded that they have some kind of immunity from judgment. And Paul took pains in the first two chapters uh, of Romans. uh, He took pains to persuade them. You do have spiritual privileges, but you do not have immunity uh, from judgment for your sin. And so then Paul, in anticipation of the next question they would ask, asks it for them, and it's in Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Romans, it's really interesting. Romans chapter 3, verse 9, uh, Paul says, What then? Are we better than they? Are we better than they? See, they thought they're fine. Paul said, you're not fine. So then they said, what's the point of being Jewish if we're not fine? Paul said, you got a lot of advantages. For one, you have the word of God. And then Paul anticipates, oh, now it's going to go to their head. And they're going to say, are we better than they? Who do you think the they is? Yeah, the Gentiles. You guys. 
Yeah, the Gentiles. So, 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 so you know what that, that's called religious ethnic pride of a bad kind. We're Jewish, we're a cut above, we're different than everybody else. We have a measure of redemption just based on our ethnicity. Not only that, God chose it. We're the chosen. Are you kidding? Moses was called up to Mount Sinai by God. He came down with Ten Commandments. It wasn't for the Italians, for the Irish folks. Sorry. I just, you know, it was for the Jews. It's for us. It's for the Jews. We're cool. So it went to their head. It was just human religious pride. And Paul is reminding him. He's going to answer the question. The question is, are we better than they? Here's Paul's answer. Not at all. Boom. You don't need to know Greek to get that figured out, do you? He is leveling the plane. Look what he says. Not at all. Why not? See, we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks, another word for Gentiles, are all under sin. That's what Paul said. There's different ethnicity and religions. That's cool. No problem. Nothing to be ashamed of. But when it comes to sin and its consequence and our accountability to God, we are all the same. So the Jewish person, Paul is saying, has certain spiritual privileges, yet all of us are equal when it comes to sin and its consequences. The spiritual advantages given to Jewish people, this is Paul's point, have not given them immunity from God's judgment. Why not? Because all of us are under sin. You know, later on, if we ever get there some other night, it'll talk about how we all have sinned, for sure. But that's not what it says here. It doesn't say we all have sinned, does it? It says we are all under sin. I'm going to tell you something. That's even worse. It's not just that we sin from time to time. We are under its influence. We are all under the umbrella of sin. That's the atmosphere in which we live, and we cannot evade it. You can cover it up with good deeds, but you cannot mask your essential nature. You have a proclivity to sin. That is your nature. You do not take a class when you're a little kid. You don't take sinning 101. You're a professor when it comes to sin. You get a PhD in transgression from an early age. You sin in thought, word, or deed. It's instinctive. It's natural. Why? You are under sin. You're a slave to it. It means you are a slave under the mastery of sin. You are under its thumb. Sin masters you, oppresses you. You're on the run from it. Look at, look at, look at. I'm good. I'm good. No, you're not. Here comes your sin nature. It catches up and it squashes all your supposed good intentions and New Year's resolutions and shows of ethics and morality. Oh, no. They all give way to the weight of your sin. What a thing for Paul to say. Good night. I guess he didn't read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Are you kidding me? I guess he's not running for uh, office uh, student president at Georgetown University or any other. You kidding me? He's declared all humankind to be under the influence of sin. Now, that video which you patiently endured earlier uh, shows us what most people, not only in our universities and society at large, but around the nation, around the world, most people uh, believe that we are basically good. We're born good. That's what people believe. That's the prevailing 
view of the majority of members of society. And Paul says something that flies in the face of that. He says we're not basically good. He says we're under the influence of sin. Now, you can hear the objections even before they're loudly verbalized. You can almost hear the demand for evidence. Prove it, Paul. Back up what you say. You've said we're all under the influence of sin. Prove it. And so Paul says, okay. He takes up the challenge, and that's what happens in the verses to follow. He's going to offer hard, rather chilling, very, very disturbing evidence to prove his statement that we are all sinful. And this is how he begins uh, in making his case in verse 10. This is what he says. It is written. You know why he said that? It's because he's speaking to Jews at this point in Romans. And he knows how to speak their language because he are one. So he invokes their own scripture. It is written. He's quoting Old Testament scripture. That's what he's doing. The Hebrew scriptures. He is saying, I'll show you how I'm going to prove this to you. I'm going to prove your sin nature from your own scriptures, which you say you respect and revere and cherish and inscribe on parchment through the millennia. You preserve it. You march it around. You kiss it. You hug it. You bow down before it. Do you know what it says? Paul says, I, I will prove to you that it says you are all sinful. And so what he does is invoke a string of Old Testament scripture verses to prove his point. And here's the first. There is none righteous, not even one. That's from the Old Testament. None righteous, not even one. In case you think there's exception to part A, there's none righteous. Paul says, no, 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 not even one. There are no exceptions. Nobody's righteous. But wait a second. Aren't there moral and ethical people in the world? Yeah, the answer is yes. But by whose standard? Ours. But that's not the standard upon which we are judged. Not human standards of righteousness. God's standard of righteousness. And nobody, not even one, has lived up to that standard of righteousness. If you want to know what that standard of righteousness really looks like, Look at Jesus. That's the only place you'll see it. You're not going to see this standard of righteousness even in this room. I mean, no offense. But you'll only find it in the life of Jesus. You know, uh, in one episode in his earthly life, he was approached by a religious person. It's recorded in Matthew chapter 22. The religious person came up to him to ask him a question. He said, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Jesus, teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? You familiar with that episode? Sound What's the great commandment? And then the Lord responded. This is in Matthew 22. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he said, this is the great and foremost commandment. Now I want to ask you a question. Apart from the Lord Jesus, do you know of anyone who has kept that commandment? I really want to meet that person. I know it's not you. It sure ain't me. It's only the, listen, how many here, if we took a poll, raise your hand. How many here have kept the commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind? How many of you have kept it perfectly since you got up this morning? Come on here. I tell you what, let Paul give the answer for us. Here it is. Not even one. That's what he says. You see, there is none righteous by God's standards not even one. 
Now, look, it feels good to pat herself on the back, give herself credit, deny reality, and say, we're good, everyone's good. But this is simply not the case, and not only that, it flies in the face of the facts. For instance, do you realize that much of that which characterizes our society is in response to human badness, not to human goodness? So, for instance, look at our laws. And there are a proliferation of them. There are more laws uh, being established in our day than at any time in human history. We have laws and more and more of them keep coming. Why? I'll tell you why. Because we cannot be trusted. That's why. And so lawmakers realizing this, are coming up with laws to restrain, to box in, to put bounds around our untrustworthy behavior. So the laws of society are rules and guidelines enforced by law enforcement agencies for the sole purpose of governing human behavior. And I ask you this question. If we're so good, why does our behavior need governance? The mere fact of laws and law enforcement proves what Paul is saying. We're pretty rotten to the core, folks. Are you feeling good about yourself yet? That's just our nature. We are sinful. Why does human behavior need governance if we are good? Folks, laws are generally divided into two major categories, criminal law and civil law. And here's a little depiction of a kind of a conglomeration of different kinds. So criminal law, for instance, is meant to regulate conduct that would be harmful to society. And civil law is meant to regulate disputes between members of society. Now, I ask you this question once again. Why do we need these laws if we are born good, if we are good, and if we simply make mistakes from time to time? Uh, there's a uh, subcategory of civil law called contract law. Contract law? Why do we need contract law? If we could be trusted to keep our word. <laughs> if people's promises and vows and covenants and verbalizations were enough because we're so good, then why would you even need the field of contract law? You know the deal? A man's word is his bond? No, it isn't. And the whole field of contract law is evidence that we can't be trusted. We lie. We break our word. We break our promises. Folks, good laws would not be necessary if society consisted of good people. But it doesn't. So good laws and good law enforcement agencies are evidence that we are not good people, even by our own standards, let alone God's. And in light of God's standards, Paul declares there's none righteous, not even one. And he goes on to say in verse 11, there's no one who understands. No one gets this by nature, apart from Christ. No one gets this. No one underst understands what? Well, for starters, no one understands sin. You didn't before Christ. I surely didn't. Apart from Christ, none of us understand sin's presence, that it permeates every aspect of our being. We don't understand sin's power, that it has mastery over us. And we surely don't understand the inevitability of sin's penalty. 
If we did have that understanding, we wouldn't live as we do. So Paul says there's none who seeks for God. None who seeks for God. Folks, are you willing to admit this? It is God who seeks us. We don't seek him. And if he chose not to seek us, we could never find our way to him. You didn't find your way to him. He extended himself to you. It's not in our nature to seek after God. You might be saying, wait a second, but what about all the religions of the world? What about all of these? Aren't the members of these various religious groups, aren't they in uh, sincerity seeking after God? No. No. Religious affiliation is no evidence at all that a person is seeking God. No. They may be seeking some sort of religious affiliation, some sort of religious approval, some sort of religious experience. But that's not the same thing as seeking God. See where it says no one seeks for God? In the Greek, the rendering is actually to seek out in a deliberate and determined way, to seek out. Folks, by nature, we don't do that. We don't invest ourselves in deliberately and with determination, seeking out, seeking after God. We don't do that. In fact, Paul says this in verse 12. He says, all have turned aside. We don't turn to God. We turn aside. He says, together. They have become useless. Useless in what sense? Look at, if God created us in his own image, a mind to think about him and a heart to love him and a will to obey him, and we are not using that equipment in that way, we're useless. We're squandering the privilege of being created in the image of God. That's what Paul says. What's more, there's no one who does good, not even one. That seems like an outrageous statement. There is none who does good. That's right. Nobody apart from Christ does one single thing that is good from God's perspective. Why do I say that? Because God doesn't look merely to the deed which has the character of being good. He looks to the motive behind it. And the motive behind a good deed may be to appease God by a show of our goodness. Our motive is so permeated and corrupted by sin that there is no good motive behind any so-called deed from God's point of view. So folks, Paul's making a very, very diligent attempt to persuade us all that we're sinners. Are you persuaded yet? Just in case you're not, Paul continues. And he refers to organs of the body five organs of the body to show us how sin has permeated and affected each. And the first four of the five are organs of speech. Good night. If you're still laboring under the misconception that we are good, have you heard yourself speaking lately? It just doesn't take long. Hang around someone and listen to what they say. So Paul mentions four Organs of speech, for here's the first. It's in verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. What a metaphor of our speech. It's like an open, you know what an open grave is? It's a smelly place. That's what it is. Folks, we have the bad breath of a sin nature that exudes every time we open our mouth. Not only that, you know what an open grave is? A place of death. 
We kill people with our words. You know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. What a lie. Words kill us. Are you kidding me? There are things you've heard in the course of your journey here on earth that are still in your mind. You heard them when you were three years old and you can't shake it. Are you kidding? You can kill a person's hope and trust and ego ego and image and and personhood and all the rest. Paul says, yeah, your throat's an open grave. He says, with their tongues, second organ, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. That's the third organ, lips. The poison of asps, that's a cobra. Paul probably had in mind in his day an Egyptian cobra. That's a depiction of one. It's poisonous. A cobra has poison contained under its lips in a bag. Paul is using that as a metaphor. He's saying, your words given the right circumstances, can poison the people who are near you. He goes on to verse 14, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. You know, our mouths were made to be an instrument of blessing and of healing and of kindness and of truth, and we've come to use our verbalizations for cursing and bitterness. When we do that, though it might be acceptable in society, do you know it's an evidence of our sin and of our depravity? Now Paul moves on from words to deeds in verse 15. Their feet are swift to shed blood. So that's the fifth body part, feet. It's a symbol of uh, the course of our life, our conduct. Paul is saying we sin not only in word but also in deed. The feet, that's a symbol of the direction, of the way, way we live our life. So does this mean every one of us, see it says their feet are swift to shed blood. Does it mean every one of us uh, has committed murder? No, it doesn't mean that. But it means every one of us has the capacity to. Where does that come from? Even the potential to take someone's life. Where does that come from? It comes from a sin nature. That's where it comes from. And because sin is in us, as it says in verse 16, destruction and misery are in their paths. You know, Paul has given us a list of evidences of sin. Can I get a little more specific? Listen, our lives, apart from Christ, are characterized by adultery and homosexuality and prostitution and rape and pornography and war and atrocities in war and gas chambers and torture and divorce and spousal abuse and child abuse and murder and Theft and embezzlement and corruption and cursing and blasphemy and lies and gossip and alcoholism and drug addiction and pride and bitterness and racism and deceit and broken promises and I don't want to look in that mirror anymore, do you? Enough. Guilty is charged. Where do all those things come from? Those are not the exceptions to the rule. Those are the rules. So here's plenty of evidence, you see, to back up Paul's statement about our sin problem. And think about this. Do you know what the world's outcry is for today? It's for peace. You know, we flash the peace symbol, peace. Peace. We... Uh, we, uh, you know, in Israel, they use, the Jews, we use the word shalom, shalom, peace, peace, you know, peace, let there be peace. 
peace, go in peace, you know, all this kind of stuff. We, we even have, uh, we have things like World Peace Day. This is a little, uh, this was a deal that was uh, used at a recent World Peace Day, you know. Make this world a place of peace. That sounds good, right? Except for what it says in verse 17. And the path of peace they have not known. You can flash the peace sign. You can have peace day. You can say shalom. But the text says you don't even know the path of peace. That's just flippant empty words. There's no substance to it. You know, folks, it's not a faith deal. Check out the world. You tell me where there's peace. What part of the world has peace? Show me. But wait, 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 this is the world's brain trust, right? Whether it's parliament, whether it's the White House, whether it's the United Nations, whether it's the uh, European Union, whether it's the Kremlin, whatever it is, whether it's Knesset in Israel, whether, whatever, the, where's peace? Are you kidding me? You know, we don't know the path. This is our cry, peace, but we don't even know the way to get there. Why not? Because we do not by nature understand and accept the way to be at peace with God. We're not peace within, at peace within. And because we are not at peace within, we cannot be at peace with one another. We do not know the path of peace. We are at war with ourselves, and we are at war with one another because we are at war with the God who made us. And the source of all that we have so painfully read through tonight with reference to ourselves is due to this, as clearly stated in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's what the text of Scripture says. Now, the university students said we're all good. The Bible says no. There's not even the fear, the respect, the acknowledgement, the reverence for God before our eyes. And that statement is the source of all of our woes. It's not economic. It's not a, a, a poverty. It's not educational deprivation. It has nothing to do with politics. Nothing to do with geopolitics. This is the deal right there. The plight of the world is due to this. The people in the world have no fear of God before their eyes. Uh, what does that mean? We have excluded God from our view. Listen. We will acknowledge we live in what he made, but we won't acknowledge him. So this is not to say we deny God's existence. What we do is we deny God's relevance. We are blindfolded to the relevance of almighty God in our lives. So if you did a gallop poll, everyone you run into believes in God. You have to search high and low to find a good, true atheist. They don't grow on trees for crying out loud. You say, are you an atheist? Absolutely not. I believe in God. It isn't the denial of God. It's worse than that. It's the acceptance that God is, but then in the way we live out our lives, the statement, but he isn't there for me. He has no relevance for me. Oh, my. Are you married? Of course I'm married. But I have nothing to do with my spouse, ever. We don't talk. We don't walk. We have no interaction. Are you an atheist? Absolutely not. I believe in God. But there's no fear of God. Before the eyes of those who are apart. Do you know what Paul has done in this passage of scripture? 
he has presented what's theologically known as the doctrine of total depravity. This is the do- in these verses we just went through. That's called the doctrine of total depravity. What does that mean? Does it mean we're as bad as we could be? Oh, no. We can and will get worse. Oh, no, we have great potential. The doctrine of total depravity does not mean we are as bad as we could be. It means our sin affects absolutely every aspect of our life, as Paul has made clear. It affects our words. It affects our thoughts. It affects our behaviors. We are totally depraved in every aspect of our being. It doesn't mean that the full potential of the sin that is there has been realized yet, but the potential is there. It's in our members. It is in our head. It's in our bodies. It's in our thought life. It's in our words. This is the doctrine of total depravity. With all due respect to George Georgetown University, Georgetown Hoyas, the, you know, they play basketball. It's really a good school as far as basketball. Really good school academically. As far as truth, it's as bad as every other university in the United States. They don't believe in the doctrine of total depravity. These kids are fooling themselves into thinking everybody is good. Then how does it, does it explain our lives and the world? And the mess we've gotten ourselves into. Good night. God got us started off in a good way. And then Genesis 3 happened. And we started to be who we are. God said, don't. And we said, I think I shall. And it got worse from there on in. Are you kidding me? Folks, here's Paul's point. The whole world is guilty before God. And Paul knows we must be absolutely convinced of that if we're ever going to be motivated to cry out to the God who is there for mercy. Why would we do that if we are persuaded we're okay, we're good, we just make some mistakes from time to time? So Paul says, mistakes, baloney. Your sin, full. In thought, word, and deed. What do I do, Paul? Cry out to God for mercy. And do you think there's a possibility of God being merciful to us? Is there a possibility of us being recipients of his mercy? Oh, yes, there is. This is the good news, which actually is the major theme of Romans. We have not gotten there yet. Because the bad news has to precede the good news. The bad news of our sinful indebtedness to God has to precede the good news of his willingness by mercy and grace to satisfy the debt for us. We'll read more in Romans. We're just about ready to move past the bad stuff. We'll read more in Romans, Lord willing, in weeks to come of the good news of God, which essentially says, I am willing to make you into my good people. How? By means of Jesus Christ, my perfect son. Folks, Christ indeed can forgive our sin, and he can do more than that. He can make us new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, New life is going to sprout by his spirit within us. It starts out as a seedling. 
and it grows and grows and grows until we look more like him, act more like him, think more like him, are like him. And the process gloriously continues until the time when we're in his arms, see him face to face, and the entirety of sin is eradicated from our very body. And we have undistracted worship of the perfect one throughout eternity. Listen to me. He can change you. That one man in the baptistry tonight said, he has begun the process of changing me. My relatives whose pictures I showed you, if they were here and I made them, would say to you, he has begun the process of giving me new life. It's not just a matter of taking our sin and casting it behind our back, which would be enough. It's a matter of being reformed, transformed, reshaped, being freed from bondage to our own sin nature. And if the Son sets you free, you shall be. Have you experienced that freedom in Christ Jesus? If not, why not tonight? Why not tonight? Why not say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I am a sinner. I was conceived in it. I live in it. I'm under the atmosphere of sin. I cannot get free. Free me, Savior, from the penalty of my sin. Free me, Savior, from the power it has over me. And one day, Savior, Will you even free me from its very presence? Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Make me like you. Come into my life, Savior. Create in me new life. Plant a seed. By my faith, plant a seed of regeneration, renewal. Make me a new creation. I hate the fact that the very things I want to do, I don't. And the things I want to avoid doing, I do. Come into my life, Lord Jesus. Set me free. Take up your abode inside. Provide for me an opposition to my unchallenged sin nature. And if you do that, I will follow you forever until we see each other face to why not make that decision tonight before you go? Lord Jesus, you have the power to bring that home to the ones here tonight who've not yet made that decision. Would you enable it? You have to. Would you seek them for they are not seeking you? Would you seek them? Would you put into the hearts of those who do not yet know you a disturbance, disturbance due to an acknowledgement of sin, disturbance due to an acknowledgement of your holiness, and then, God, this realization that your mercy is available for them. Mercy, which is behind the fact that you came to suffer and die for each of us in our place and then rose up from death, my heavens, willing to take up your abode in our lives tonight. Oh God, in the power of your spirit, I pray you would convert 
from darkness to light, from lostness to salvation, from hopelessness to hope, from mastery by sin to freedom under the lordship of the Savior. In the power of your spirit, would you convert some even tonight? In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.